We've been working our way through the book of Acts. Last week we began Acts chapter 8. Now it's called the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles because it covers the time period from when Jesus goes back to heaven, he's crucified, he's dead, buried, raised from the dead, ascends to heaven, and then uh, the church is then uh, birthed at that point. 35 years later, the book of Acts covers about the next 35 years. What I love about the book of Acts is it gives us the history and the theology of the early church. It tells us what happened, and it also tells us what they believed and why it was so important to them. So last week we made it through the first part of chapter 8. We want to do our best to go one chapter a week, but last week we, we only got through half the chapter. We'll finish up the chapter today, so we'll have to do some recapping. But one of the things that we do every week is we give a little bit of the time frame. So Acts chapter 1 and 2 there in your outline, that took place in 30 AD. Again, that's the year that Jesus died and rose again, went back to heaven. The church is birthed, the Holy Spirit is given. By the time you come to Acts chapter 8, that's about five years later. So Acts chapter 8 is actually going to cover a time period that's going to go from about 35 AD to 36 AD. And we'll see that as we travel through. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 1. You'll remember from our last study, the first martyr of the church, Stephen, has been killed by the religious leadership there in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, So Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And so uh, we started last week, we, we started right there talking about the death of Stephen, and he was put to death, as we said, by the religious leadership there in Jerusalem. It says that it was in hearty agreement with a man named Saul, that would be his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. We will know him later on in chapter 9 and through the rest of Acts, he will be, named, he will be known as Paul, which will be his Roman name. He will become Paul the Apostle, but at this point he's a persecutor of the church. So in verse 3, just to recap a little bit, it says, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And one of the things I want to highlight very quickly, and you want to write this down, is that persecution doesn't make us, it reveals us. You see, the truth is non-believers will never suffer for the gospel. These are true believers. They're under persecution. They're being scattered, but now they're preaching the word as they go. Jesus would say it like this. He says, he has no firm root in, in himself, but is only temporary. But when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And we've all met people who are all in with Jesus as long as everything's going great, but at the first sign of difficulty, now they're done with Jesus. And so persecution here has a way of revealing us. Verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began, began proclaiming Christ to them. So everybody is scattered, but Philip goes to Samaria. Now, the Bible, the Holy Spirit could tell the story of any of several thousand people that have been scattered. But there's a specific reason, as we're going to see today, that the Holy Spirit wanted to highlight Philip's story. Although there are many stories like Philip's, but there's going to be something unique in Philip's story that we'll talk about today. 
So I, I love to begin with the, the map when we talk about this. You know, if you're like me, I grew up in church and they talk about these places in Israel, and I, I had no concept of what they were talking about. So they're at the top of Israel, and always keep in mind that Israel is a very small country. It's literally the size of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. That's the size of the entire country. And so in the top of the country, you have the area of Galilee. And in Galilee, you have what's called the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. They called it the Sea of Galilee, but you could take 10 of the Sea of Galilee's and put them in Lake Okeechobee, and you'd still have room left over. So uh, it was big from their perspective, maybe not so big from from our perspective. But Jesus' ministry was primarily in the northern part of Israel. That's where he chose his disciples. But then down at the bottom part of Israel, you have this area called Judea. And in the bottom part, there's this town called Jerusalem. And so Jesus had called his disciples to move from the northern part where they had all their connections, their businesses, their relationships, down to the southern part to the city of Jerusalem, which would be the, the uh, place of opposition and ultimately persecution. That's in the bottom part. So persecution begins, everybody scatters, but Philip goes up to the area of Samaria. Now Samaria is right there in the middle of Israel, and that's where the Samaritans live. And we talked about that last week. They began as Jewish people, but about 700 years earlier, the Assyrians came in and began to intermingle with them, and it created not just another race, that really wasn't the problem, but they took Judaism and they began to mix it with other religious practices, and so it was no longer Judaism. So the Samaritans over time and the Jewish people in the north and the south began to hate one another. So there there was a a great deal of tension between the two groups. Down in verse 7, Philip goes and he's preaching to to the Samaritans. And it says, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed, lame, were healed. Paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, the, the part that we highlighted last week, and I just want to reference this week, is that Philip believed that God still wanted to bring healing in people's lives. Apparently, healing was a large part of his preaching because people are coming to him to receive their healing. They've come to the place where they believe that God can heal them and God wants to heal them. So that's apparently a large part of his teaching. Now, it's also important for us in this time in which we live to understand that in the Bible, in the New Testament, sickness and disease is is never talked about as something that God sends on his people. It's always attributed to the work of Satan. So when you go to Acts chapter 10 there on your outline, it'll say, God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing, I've underlined that, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God, was with, because God was with him. So in the Bible, sickness is always attributed to Satan. Sadly, in, in our time, in our culture, there are those who profess to be followers of Jesus, and they will talk about how God has given me this sickness, and they'll say all the various reasons. But in the Bible, sickness is always attributed to the work of Satan. You never want to take what God says Satan is doing and then turn around and say, God is doing this to me. The reason that's important, I'll say it 
probably every week is that it's very hard to believe in God for healing if at the same time you are believing that God is the one who did this to you. God didn't do that, that's the work of Satan. So he's there preaching, and as he's preaching, uh, we find people are coming to the Lord. One person that we talked about last week is a guy named Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, and he makes a false profession of faith. In verse 13 it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized he continued on with Philip, and he observed the signs and the great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. He makes a profession of faith, but we looked last week, and he ultimately, the profession was on the outside, not on the inside. The apostles come down, he sees miracles taking place, and he wants to purchase the ability to, to be able to perform those miracles. So all the way down in verse 21, we looked at last week, Peter says to him, you have no part in this portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And uh, ultimately, early church documents hold that this Simon never repents. And so his profession was a, a, f- a false profession, and he ultimately becomes a great opposer of the church. So time is going on. People are coming to the Lord. Verse 25, it says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now these are the apostles Peter and John. They're going back, but they don't just go straight back. They're going through all the villages. So this would tell us this might be several months of time taking place as they're going back. So you want to keep in in your mind as you go through the book of Acts that time is passing. So sometime later, um, Philip here, he's in Samaria. The apostles have gone back. The ministry is growing. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. They're hungering for the word. It's, It's a very blessed time in Philip's life. Apparently, he's settled down by this time. And at a certain point along the way, verse 26, it says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And and one of the things that we're going to find is that God is going to call Philip from the place of fruitfulness to the place of a desert. And and this is going to be uh, for him a we would say it's something that would make absolutely no sense because things are really going well for him in Samaria. So the first point I want to make and write this down is that God speaks very specifically. We would say undeniably. So let me just uh, show you a map here real quick. Philip is north of Jerusalem in this area of Samaria, but he's told to go south of Jerusalem to this road uh, which is going to be going over to Gaza, ultimately a little bit south of, of Israel. So he's got to go over there. Um, and that's where the road is ultimately going. So the Holy Spirit says, get up, go to this road. And, and uh, so, so Philip has to decide, is this something that he's going to do? And again, this would make no sense to him because things are going very, very well for Philip in this time. And what I appreciate about this, and there's something for all of us especially for those of us who come from a little bit different church background, is that any time God speaks, he always speaks very specifically. So let me just read verse 26 again. It says, But the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up, 
go to the south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. If you're like me and you've been around the church block, you might say, and been in different groups, when I first got out of seminary, I pastored in a wonderful church. And in many ways, my heart is still, uh, that church will always be part of me. But we had in that community, not just our church, but several churches, we had what was called the flame meeting where we'd all come together. Now the flame meeting was that once a month they would bring in a prophet and that prophet would come and they would begin to prophesy over people. And what I noticed is that the prophecies were never specific like what you see in the Bible. They were always very misty. And, and that's the only way I know to describe them. So they would call somebody forward and they'd say something like, you know, I'm sensing here that the Lord is really wanting to do something in your life that you've been praying for. Uh, you've been praying for a breakthrough in a certain area of your life. Is that true? Now let me ask you a question. Are, you, are we all praying for a breakthrough in some area? So, so we're all praying for that. So, but you know, it's, it's real, there's an area, and, and so what would that area, and they say, well, it's financial. It's, yes, yes, that's it. That's what the Lord is revealing. <laughs> no, you just revealed it. So the Lord is, but here's, the, God, God is what, here's what the Lord is telling me. The Lord is telling me that God wants to, to move in this area to give you this breakthrough, but, but right now there's this area in your life that the Lord's been dealing with you on. It, it's like that secret part of your life and you haven't put that behind you. You're, you're still struggling with that. And I'm not going to say it out loud to which we are like, thank you, Jesus. Don't say it out loud. And, uh, but here, here's what he wants you. He wants you to, to, to let that go, be done with that so that he can open He can receive God's blessing. Now, when you, you receive prophecies like that, those are true for all of us. And in those situations, there's no way to really test the prophet because the prophet's right. You know, if you receive that breakthrough, it's because you dealt with whatever it is. If you don't receive the, the fulfillment of that, it's because you never dealt with whatever it is. And so it's this very misty kind of prophecy. You don't get that in the Bible. Does that make sense? So I, I, I love the, the prophets in the Bible. For instance, we all know the story. You have David and Bathsheba, and uh, you know David takes Bathsheba, has her husband killed, thinks nobody's going to know, and then one day the prophet Nathan shows up and says, "David, let me tell you a story." He says, "There's this guy in your kingdom, you know, and he's not really wealthy. He has one sheep, just one sheep, David, and he loves the sheep and he carries it everywhere he goes. It's his favorite thing in the whole world. He loves it. David's listening, you know, and and he says, and, and so." One day there's this other guy, he's got a lot of sheep, a lot of sheep, and he's very wealthy. But one day he's not interested in his sheep and he looks at this guy's sheep and he goes, I want that guy's sheep. So he goes, David, you're not going to believe this. He goes and he steals the guy's sheep. And then, so that nobody finds out, he kills the guy. He kills the guy, David, so he can steal the sheep. And you know the story, David goes, that man must die. And Nathan goes, you are the man. Very, very specific, very, very undeniable. If it's from God, it's going to be very direct, very specific, never misty. That makes sense? Okay. So another thing that I would want to say, and we read verse 26 is, and you want to write this down, that God gives no explanation. God doesn't say, here's what I'm doing. He just says, I want you to get up and I want you to go. 
Uh, I'm going to give you some explanation as we travel through, but God does not give Philip any explanation. One of the things you'll learn is that when God tells you to do something, it's going to be very specific. But if you can't move without explanation, you're going to be very frustrated because God doesn't always give explanation. Philip's responsibility will be just to obey. You want to write that down. So verse 27, it begins, I put it there on your outline. It says, so he got up and went. He got up and went. Verse 27 and 28, let me read it. It says, so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And I've underlined treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So there's a few things that we we would read over that you you, you need to know just to kind of unpack this. First of all, Candace in Ethiopia is not a name. It's It's a position. It's like Pharaoh. You know, that's not a name, it's a position. So Candace is actually a position, uh, it's a title for Ethiopian royalty. This man is described as a eunuch. Now, it used to be that a eunuch was somebody who was, um, how do I say this politely? He was a rooster turned to a hen. We'll stick with that. And, uh, and, so, and the reason for that was that eunuchs typically were to watch over by kings of the harem and they didn't want the eunuchs sampling that. And so they would do that. Uh, over time, eunuchs became less and less known for that surgery, we might say, but they were just, uh, it was just a term for people who held high position of being entrusted with something in a kingdom. It meant administrator. So he goes to Jerusalem to worship. So was he somebody who had the operation or was it just a position uh, that he was called? Well, if he went to Jerusalem to worship, there on your outline, it says all the way back in Deuteronomy, it says, no one who has been emasculated may enter the assembly of the Lord. So he would not be allowed to enter if that were the case. And so he went down to worship. So we assume that, that he was a court official, but not that he'd actually been through the surgery. At this point, he is returning back to Ethiopia. Now he's in his chariot, but he's the one who's over the treasury of the queen. And so what you, you don't want to have in your mind a, a view of there's a guy, a lone guy, riding in his chariot back to Ethiopia. This is going to be a military entourage that's traveling. In the Bible, they're just telling the story of the, of the man, but there's going to be a much larger group that travels with him. And so he's also reading from the book of Isaiah. Now that would also indicate something. In our world, we, we can buy a Bible for, for a few dollars. It's, it's not expensive. But in the ancient world, Scripture was very expensive because Scripture in the Old Testament, the way that they would write it and transcribe it, it took a number of people. They would write every letter, every line, and they would add the, the letters going this way. They'd add the letters going this way. And if there was any imperfection whatsoever, even down to one letter, they'd throw the whole thing out. And so scripture was very expensive. And he said, well, what, $300 for the book of Isaiah? No, probably closer to like $50,000 would be more the, the idea. But just of what it took to go into it. 
So in the time of Jesus, towns would save years in order to collectively come together and purchase just one copy of the Bible or just one part of the Bible. It was so expensive. So, so here's this Ethiopian, and he's going back to Ethiopia. And um, there, there's a reason here why the Holy Spirit wants to tell us this story. So I, I want to give a little backstory if I can, maybe just to give some perspective. If nothing else, hopefully you'll find it somewhat interesting. Maybe some fun conjecture. About a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth, about 900 years before Jesus was on the earth, you, know, you have King David and then he has a son and his son is named Solomon. Solomon is known as the great wise king. Well, Solomon is on the throne and there's a woman and she's known in the Bible as the Queen of Sheba. Have you ever heard the story of the Queen of Sheba? And so there on your outline from 1 Kings chapter 10, and you want to read the rest of the chapter later, it says, now when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Jehovah, she came to prove him with hard questions. And the, and the chapter goes on and you can read that later. Well, come to find out Sheba was a very large country at that time. Today we would say, and you want to write this down, Sheba is Ethiopia. Sheba is Ethiopia. Let me just show you a map real quick. You have Israel, which is again about the size of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. And then you go all the way down through Egypt. And then you come to this massive country called Ethiopia. And so Ethiopia and, or Sheba would encompass Ethiopia and then part of Saudi Arabia. So it was, it was, it was massive. Now, many people believe that the book Song of Solomon, how many of you read the book of Song of Solomon? Come on, it's X-rated, you got to read it. <laughs> it. really is. I'm going to move on. <laughs> but, yeah, teach it. Yeah. <laughs> we have small groups for that. <laughs> but... But many people believe that the woman in Song of Solomon is none other than the Queen of Sheba. And there's some, some reasons for that. Maybe she is, maybe she's not. So, as the legend goes, as the legend goes, the Queen of Sheba and Solomon have a romantic relationship. And she gets pregnant with a child, and it's a son, and his name is Menelik. Menelik. And now he's not mentioned in the Bible, but Solomon has a lot of sons that aren't mentioned in the Bible. So just the fact that he's not mentioned in the Bible does, doesn't mean that he didn't exist. But he would be the son of Solomon. Now, for the past almost 3,000 years, prior to World War II in Ethiopia, all of their monarchs, all of their monarchs held that they came from, or they were descendants of Solomon. So go ahead and write this down. Ethiopian monarchs claim to be descendants of Solomon. And one of the things that you find is that Judaism began to be practiced in Ethiopia about this time. And so it begins to be practiced rather strictly, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. So the legend states, and the Ethiopians even to today believe that at some point in history, the Ark of the Covenant was sent down to Ethiopia to be held for safekeeping. And uh, the Ethiopians believe today that they are actually guarding that. 
Now, there are different legends as to how it got down there, and this is just legend at this point, and nobody's seen it. But it appears that if this happened, it probably happened under the, the reign of the evil king Manasseh, who was bringing in all types of paganism, idolatry, and the priests began, began to become very concerned that he was going to completely destroy everything that they held dear, and they were concerned that he would destroy the Ark of the Covenant. So as the, the legend goes, the priest came together and said, we have to protect this. Where can we send this so that Manasseh can't destroy it? So they said, we need to send it to Ethiopia, to Menelik's kids who are all practicing Judaism. This is hundreds of years later. And they would keep it safe. They would keep it safe until later on. So the Ethiopians back then for thousands of years and even today believe that somewhere in Ethiopia the ark exists and they are guarding it. They believed at the time of Jesus and even today that they are guarding the ark and they believe that at a certain point the Messiah is going to come and when he appears their guardianship ends. They will then present the ark of the covenant to the Messiah as a gift as a gift back to him. So they believe that. So it's theorized that this Ethiopian who's over the treasury of the Queen of Sheba, or uh, we would know her as Candace, the Queen of Ethiopia, that there in Ethiopia they have heard that the Messiah has in fact come. And so they send the one who's over the treasury to Jerusalem to make sure that what they've heard is true. So this one comes all the way up from Ethiopia with his military entourage, not with the ark, but just with the entourage, to see, has the Messiah appeared? He comes to Jerusalem. There's no Messiah. There's no Messiah. The church has been scattered at this time. And so he's now, there's no Messiah here. We heard that there was. We must have missed something. So now he's heading back home. And apparently he would be very, very confused. There on your outline... I put a couple of words, and this week just for fun, I want you to go online and I want you to look up the Falashas. Does everybody see that word there? And Menelik or Bet Israel. And uh, there's a couple of really great YouTube videos that are only about 15 minutes long and it'll it'll explain more of what I've I've mentioned. And if you watch the video, send me an email, let me know that you watched them. So here's what took place. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the world, as you know, at a certain period of time goes into the Dark Ages. There's a a real disconnect between countries. In the 1860s, explorers are going through Ethiopia. As they go through Ethiopia, they discover a group that's called the Falashas. Now, the Falashas are Ethiopian Jews, and they are practicing Judaism with a perfect Old Testament just written in their language and they've been doing this for thousands of years and they believe that they are protecting the Ark of the Covenant and they believe that when the Messiah appears that they're going to give that back to them. So it's a fascinating study as you watch that how Ethiopia, the other side of the world, there's this strong contingent of Jewish people not 50 or 60 of them, but hundreds of thousands of them practicing Judaism. When they're discovered in the 1860s, they believed that they were the only living Jews on the planet. They thought the rest of the Jews had been killed. 
And so there they are believing that they are guarding the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very, very interesting study. Did, did I put you to sleep? Okay, three of you, I did. But so we're going to. So it's theorized that this administrator has come to Jerusalem to see has the Messiah really appeared. And so he, he doesn't see the Messiah. There's no Christians in Jerusalem at this time. Nobody's talking about it at the temple. So now he's heading back to, to Ethiopia and, uh, and just, just going back, very, very confused. Verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Now, one other thing, very quickly write this down, is that God's will is revealed one step at a time. One step at a time. If you need to know the next five or six steps when you're following God's will, you'll always be frustrated because he gives his will one step at a time. So the Lord says, go up into this chariot. Verse 30, so Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Now I put there in your outline, he's reading from Isaiah 53. You want to go back and read that because it's all, all about Jesus. But in that day, when they read this, they had no idea who it was about. So there were certain theories. Some thought that when Isaiah wrote this, he was writing about himself. And and so they they tried to put in, that didn't make any sense. Some thought that Isaiah was writing about the nation of Israel. And that didn't really make sense, but, but some thought that. Some thought, rightfully, that it was referring to the coming Messiah. But they really struggled with the whole idea that their Messiah would have to suffer in any way. So that was something they struggled with. So verse 35, it says, so Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he, and I've I've underlined, preached Jesus to him. Preached Jesus to him. So go ahead and write this down. Philip preached Jesus from the Old Testament. Completely from the Old Testament. And and what I, I love about this is that Philip does not preach a denomination. He does not preach an institution. He just preaches Jesus. And the way that he preaches Jesus, it says starting from this scripture, that was in the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament, so it was only from the Old Testament that he could preach Jesus. The entire Old Testament all points to Jesus as the idea. Verse 36, it says, so they went along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So apparently Philip's sermon, teaching, uh, told him a whole lot more than, than what we know because at the end of the sermon, the end of the teaching, he knows that he should be baptized. And so uh, we would suggest that he's probably been speaking with this man for about three hours or maybe, maybe even longer. So went, verse 36, they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now verse 37 is my favorite verse. I love verse 37. Um, verse 37 is so great because it, it's always there between verse 36 and 38. It's, it's right there. You can't miss it. You have 36 and there's 37 
and then there's verse 38. So we're going to read verse 37 together. Does everybody have verse 37? Anybody not have verse 37? You don't have verse 37? She didn't have verse 37? Why, why would you have a Bible that didn't have verse 37? <laughs> so here's what happened. Uh, verse 37 has been there for 2,000 years. About 150 years ago, when they began, some of those who were translating the Bible into more uh, modern English, they started looking at manuscripts. And uh, they suggested that verse 37 was not part of the original. They, they felt that somebody added it in later, and so they took it out. We would say it's been there for 2,000 years, and so we leave it in. So we'd be a verse 37 church. And it's okay that, that your Bible doesn't have verse 37. I put verse 37 on your outline. You can cut it out later and tape it in your Bible. <laughs> so so, but, but keep in mind, we started this. Philip, he, has, he goes to Samaria. As he goes to Samaria, one of the guys who's there is the Simon, the magician. And Simon gives this profession of faith. Philip baptizes him, but come to find out the guy doesn't really believe. He's never been converted. So here the Ethiopian says, I want to be baptized. And so Philip remembers the last situation. So he says, verse 37, there in your outline, Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. To which Philip says, verse 38, so he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So that's why verse 37 is so important. Now, verse 38, uh, very quickly, he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. I'm not going to develop it today, but one of the things you find in the Bible, and I need to say it like that, in the Bible, it's always, always, always this way. In the Bible, somebody believes first, then they are baptized, 100%. In the Bible, baptism means to immerse. So in the Bible, anytime you see baptism, they go down into the water and they are immersed. Baptism is when you identify with the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I know that other churches do not practice that. Some they baptize, then expect you to at some point believe they don't immerse, they sprinkle. Here at Calvary, when we go to the Bible, we see that baptism always comes, uh, belief always comes before baptism, and it's always down in the water. It's, it's always immersion. So verse 39, verse 39 says, they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Uh, I love this. A couple of reasons. First of all, when it says he snatched him away, they come up out of the water and Philip is snatched away. Uh, I put verse 39 there on your outline. It says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched. And that word there in the Greek is harpazo. Everybody see that? Harpazo. Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. The first thing that's important is the snatching means instantaneous removing. It's the same word in 1 Thessalonians when the Bible talks about the rapture of the church that were removed in the twinkling of an eye. And so you see this happening here. He's just removed instantaneous, instantaneously. It's also important that, and put yourself in this Ethiopian's position, you come up out of the water. Philip's been there for several hours explaining things. He baptizes you. You look at him and he just disappears. And uh, to me, that would freak me out. 
But here, what you see is the eunuch, this Ethiopian, he goes away rejoicing. And that tells us he rejoices, he's not freaked out because his faith is in Jesus, not Philip. So he's, he's okay with that. So then verse 40, it says, but Philip found himself in Azotus as he passed through this, as he passed through preaching, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Caesarea would be Caesarea, the idea of city of Caesar there in Jerusalem. So um, let me just give you a quick map of that. So somewhere this guy's, they're heading down below Gaza all the way down and uh, at some point there's some water there and they baptize and then they come out of the water and all of a sudden Philip finds himself at Azotus which is right there on the coast. Does everybody see that? And then it says he goes through all the villages and he's preaching all the way up till he comes to Caesarea. This might take six months, it might take a year, we don't really know, but he's stopping, he's preaching and he's going. So what I love about this is he goes to Caesarea and then there on your outline you'll see that verse. I want you to write 20 years later, 20 years later. Paul's going to be traveling through this area and it says, leaving the next day we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So apparently he goes up to this place. God says, this is where you're going to stay. He gets married, has a bunch of kids. Kids grow up and uh, they're they're called prophetesses uh, in some of your translations. But these girls are, not that they perpetually are unmarried, but they're just young girls at this point and God's using them in a unique way. So the idea is that although Philip has had all of these wonderful experiences, go ahead and write this down. Philip just goes on to live a very normal life, sharing everywhere he goes, and he's called the evangelist, so we know what he's been doing all of these years. So uh, did you at least find that interesting today? Good. I hope that you do go look up the Falashas and take about 15 minutes and just get an idea as to why God wanted to tell the story of this Ethiopian. Let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, we pray that as we go forward and we celebrate this weekend, Lord, we're grateful that we get to celebrate this weekend and we realize, Lord, that it's because so many in the past and even currently uh, have paid the price so that we could. So help us as we go forward to live with a great responsibility of their sacrifice. Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.